This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Dr. Andrew Silverman is my guest, and he stays with us for the full two hours. He's the author of A Burst of Conscious Light, Near-Death Experiences, The Shroud of Turin, and The Limitless Potential of Humanity. Dr. Silverman provides evidence that human consciousness can never be reproduced and exposes the perils of artificial intelligence. He explains how consciousness transcends the brain and body through quantum theory and accounts of consciousness in the clinically dead. And he shares scientific evidence of how the image on the Shroud of Turin was produced and connects these findings to evidence concerning near-death experiences. Dr. Silverman is a medical doctor with a background in physics, and for over 30 years he's been conducting research on the mind-matter continuum, near-death experiences, and the Shroud. Dr. Andrew Silverman, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. My pleasure. I'd like to begin by discussing what it means to be human. And you cite in the book a recent study at Oxford University uh, dealing with artificial intelligence and, and replicating the workings of the human brain. The study was called Whole Brain Emulation, a Roadmap. Tell me a little bit about that study. What were they trying to do? Uh, well, that study itself wasn't actually, I don't believe that one was at, at Oxford, um, but uh, what they were looking into the possibility of whether a human mind could be emulated uh, by uh, artificial intelligence. Now, you see, this is uh, one of the main themes in my book, is whether such a thing is possible, and if not, why not, and what are the implications for our species if that is what people are aiming towards. Now, where Oxford University and Cambridge University, both in, in England, are, are relevant uh, in this, is that in the Oxford University, there's the Future of Humanity Institute, and in Cambridge University, the Cambridge, the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk, 
which are both looking into the what might be possible threats to human existence. And what they what they came out with is that although, of course, there are dangers from climate change, from nuclear war, or uh, through uh, germ warfare, so many things that could cause human annihilation. One of the most likely threats that they feel is likely to cause the extinction of the human race is unanticipated consequences of technology. And amongst these is the dangers of artificial intelligence. You see, uh, when you're programming a, a computer, a machine, a robot, to uh, it could be done with the best intentions, but you're programming it to protect people. And you say, for example, prevent human suffering. Well, what many scholars have said is that a machine trying to think just simply logically without any sense of conscience or meaning or, or purpose, deeper purpose, if it's going to prevent human suffering, the simplest way to ensure that there's never any human suffering is to wipe out the human race. So there are, are all sorts of dangers through, for example, these autonomous weapons and so on uh, that uh, that could lead to very serious danger for mankind. And the particular one that I was addressing in uh, in the book in that part about the uploading is the question of whether it's even possible to upload the human mind. You see, I argue in the book that we are not made of information, that a mind is something that can perceive information, which is very different from being just a string of ones and zeros, if you like. Right. A, so, tape, rec a tape recorder... Uh, can receive information, but the tape recorder is just is not conscious uh, other than the fact that there are, you know, it's recording vibrations, but it's not, there's no awareness there. Exactly right. You've put it very well. And in fact, uh, there was a book written by a very learned scholar from Oxford University in 1989 called The Emperor's New Mind that was talking about the, you know, this, you know, like with the emperor's new, new suit, everyone says it's wonderful, but actually he hasn't got a suit. And this is the, the way that many people think that it is with, with artificial intelligence, that people haven't actually considered properly whether there's actually a mind there. And as you quite rightly say, a tape recorder or a book can, can contain information, but they can never be conscious. And so I, I believe it's madness to think that we could in some way upload our minds into a machine and that machine would then be us, that we would be conscious in that machine. And the danger is that people believing that, that they can continue in machines in that way will think, oh, we don't need these fragile, uh, puny biological humans anymore because they last for a certain number of decades and then they're gone. But we can make these rep self-replicating robots and put upload our minds into them and then that's us but it's not us you see and then we we've got the human beings would have nowhere to be born because you can't be born to a machine right and and the transhumanist movement people like ray kurzweil talk about achieving immortality by sort of re-sleeving our consciousness uh, uploading it as you say so digital immortality but as you point out in a burst of conscious light it's they're misguided because it's all predicated on a total misunderstanding of what consciousness is. So what what is consciousness? What is your definition and, and where do you think it resides? 
That's such a wonderful question. And as I address this question in the book, how does one define consciousness? Because whenever one gives a, a definition of anything, it's always done relatively to to something else. So, for example, if you're describing uh, what the about the color blue or so, or something like that, you will refer people to say, oh, it looks like the sky. Well, if you've never seen the sky or you don't know what that looks like, then how do you know what, what blue is? So our usual definitions are, are based on material sensory experience and we're always they're always related to the contents of our perception uh, what we see what we hear and what we feel and smell and taste and so on uh, and that's what we describe when we're defining something whereas consciousness is something totally different to that consciousness is the room the space if you like in which those experiences those perceptions happen and so it's not possible to define it in terms of the contents of our perception. And yet, although we can't define what it is, everyone who is conscious knows what it is because they they are it. They are consciousness. They are awareness. Every human being is awareness and they know what it is to be aware. But you can't put a, a definition of that in machine code, if you like, for the very simple reason that a machine can't experience can't experience anything because it can never be conscious. So in terms of under, uh, defining what consciousness is, one can only refer the, the listener, the reader, or any human being to the look at their own experience. And they see within their experience all of the contents and then look back and say, those contents exist within my my perception. So my perception is bigger than those contents. A good friend of mine once got me to to, do, to look up at the the night sky and see all the 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 hundreds of billions of stars that you can see there. There are many billions of light years away, some of them, and all the galaxies and so on. And it's amazing to think that all of those things that you're seeing all exist within your mind's eye. So your mind is bigger than all of that. It's bigger than the sky. It's bigger than the universe. That is amazing to think about. In a, a burst of conscious light, you address three seemingly disparate subjects. The, the, the first is quantum mechanics and the role of consciousness uh, of the observer. Uh, the second is the near-death experience. And the third is the image on the Shroud of Turin. And you demonstrate how all three of these subjects, while seemingly disparate areas, are in fact related and ultimately demonstrate the limitless potential of humanity. So let's start with the Shroud. If you could, uh, this is something I've talked about many, many times, uh, but there may be some out there still not very familiar with this remarkable piece of woven limit, uh, linen. So just give a brief description of what this... Uh, this Shroud of Turin is, is all about, what it looks like and, and what image is on the Shroud. Certainly. Well, it's a 14 foot by, by 4 foot roughly length of, of linen cloth, uh, which has on it several markings, the most significant of which are uh, human blood stains, which have been forensically studied and been found to be human blood, and it tells uh, the the pattern of the stains and the and the serum around them tells a, a story of 
that can be read by a, a forensic pathologist looking at the cloth and it's been discovered that this cloth once wrapped the recently deceased body of a man who had been who had been tortured he had been whipped by two two assailants and he had had a cap of sharp objects placed upon his head uh, such as thorns may have been for example and he had been crucified he'd been crucified through the the feet and also interestingly through the wrists now this is important because if you you look at for example medieval art and so on it's always depicted that the that the nails went through the hands but we know they must have gone through the wrists and we have known this for for just over about 100 years only uh, after this was studied by by anatomists and, it, and pathologists and it was found that the hands wouldn't have been able to take the weight of the body so a forger if if, if it's people want to have the, the theory that this was made by a medieval forger he would actually have to have ripped and crucified someone and uh, crucified them through the through the wrist first to just to make the just to make the blood stains and they nobody in in those times even knew that the crucifixion was through the wrists now the even more important on there is a, there's a very faint sepia toned image of a of a man now when, when we're talking about the shroud i should just get one thing out of the way because some people may have heard that in around 30 years ago there was a report that was published in a very respected journal called nature uh, which purported to show through radiocarbon dating that the that the shroud was was medieval in origin. Now, I was a I was a student at the at the time that that came out, and I was doing a science degree as during my uh, medical degree, and I so I used to read Nature each week. So I was actually saw this this uh, journal when it came out, and something interested me in the the table of of the actual raw data they was a discrepancy because the different labs had dated the the small samples that were taken from the same patch of cloth and they had come out with statistically different ages for them that would be were beyond what you would expect from chance so there seemed to be some variation in apparent age of the cloth even within the tiny sample that was studied and since then there was some great work done by uh, a couple in the states called Sue Benford and, and Joe Marino who who discovered that the corner of the the cloth that was taken for carbon dating had been one of the most damaged through through the history of the shroud and it had actually been repaired it had been there had been a reweave done incorporating so that the the sample that was sent to the radiocarbon labs was the majority of the of the of the fibers in that were actually much more modern than the, the shroud itself it wasn't representative of the of the whole cloth now there was a, a scientist at Los Alamos called Raymond Rogers, who, um, when he first heard about the research of Benford and Marino, he said he he was actually one of the original team of scientists who had researched the shroud. So he still had some samples left from near the radiocarbon area and from elsewhere on the cloth. And so his first reaction to hearing what they were saying was 
anger almost, if you like, saying, um, I've, well, I've got the material to prove these people wrong in five minutes. And what he actually did was he tested parts of the, the sample from near the carbon dating area and from elsewhere on the shroud. And he said, I set out to prove them wrong. I've actually ended up proving them right. And he, he wrote up uh, a, a paper in a respected peer-reviewed journal called Thermochemica Acta about his chemical findings that the sample that was taken for radiocarbon dating was not representative of the rest of the cloth. And you know, even the, one, the current uh, lead researcher of the Oxford Radiocarbon Dating Unit, he was, he was a junior researcher at the time of the dating and, and I believe now uh, runs the, the lab. He says that, the, that despite what the radiocarbon seemed to show, that much more research needs to, to be done on this, what he called this intriguing cloth, because there's so much other evidence that that suggests it may have exactly. been much older. Now, my, my, uh, my lovely bride uh, was an archaeologist, and um, one of the things she's always said is if, if you have a carbon dating that's out of line with all the rest of the evidence, you don't throw out the rest of the evidence, you, you, you retest the, the carbon dating. Indeed. Uh, and if you look at the linen, I mean, the, the weave of the linen, linen is particular to first century Jerusalem. Uh, you know, you've talked about how the image on the shroud mirrors in such detail the gospel account of the crucifixion, uh, right down to the, you know, the, uh, the, the broken uh, leg, which, or the fact that his leg wasn't broken, but the Roman soldiers would break a crucifixion victim's legs in order to hasten death. Well, Jesus was already dead, so they didn't need to break his leg. Uh, the other interesting thing is you were, you were mentioning the, the, um, the nails did not go through the palm. They went through the wrists mm. and, uh, the, the thumbs on the, on the image are not visible because they're tucked under. Talk to me about the significance of that. Well, uh, for many years, many people have said that this may have been because the, the nail, was uh, was actually uh, went through the median nerve, which goes through the hand, and and whether that may have caused the the thumb position to be to be different. I actually through various other reasons, and and after having heard a paper that was presented by uh, an American physician called uh, Dr. Gilbert Lavoie. I actually believe that the that the man of the shroud at the that there were two thing two events here. One was the the formation of the blood stains, which happened by a very simple process uh, from basically a, a, a dead body laid flat on its back and with the the shroud uh, wrapped around it so he was laying on his back on the on one aspect of the cloth and then it was folded over the top of his head and and down over the rest of him and then the the stains formed but we just before i i I, sorry i digressed onto the the topic of the carbon dating i was about to talk about the the actual image of the man on the cloth so if i may talk a little bit more about that to put this in context it's basically a very faint sepia toned image that you can just make out of the front and the back of the man which corresponds roughly to in most parts to to the bloodstains and i'll come back to that why it doesn't correspond completely to them in a moment now for for hundreds of years it was thought that that's just it was just a, a faint image until 
the photography was developed in the 19th century and uh, somebody called Secondo Pia took a, a photograph of the shroud and he, when he looked at his photographic negative plate, as it obviously this was a long time before digital photos one for your younger listeners in, in, those, <laughs> in those days um, the, one had to take a negative first and then uh, which was all the tones are, are reversed so everything that's bright will look dark and everything that's dark will look bright on a on a negative so he saw the the uh, photographic negative plate and it said that he nearly dropped it in shock because the photographic negative if you look at a photographic negative of the shroud and there are uh, um, the images in in my book kindly reproduced by by permission from uh, Barry Schwartz there are you can see that the photographic negative it looks like a, a photograph. A positive. Because the, yeah. A positive because the the actual image itself is like a photographic negative. Now, In other words, the is, image on the shroud is a negative. And when he took a picture of it, yes. you know, two, people who remember their math, two negatives equal a positive. So he was that the image on the shroud is a negative. Would you describe it as an X-ray? Uh, I, I wouldn't personally describe it as an X-ray, but it has certain properties that that are similar to to a photographic negative. I would just put it like that: that right. there's a re reversing of uh, uh, of light and dark. And again, why would a, a forger? do that some people say well the forger um the, the uh so-called forger was um actually taking a, a photograph using a camera obscura well um again going back to uh i mentioned barry schwartz earlier he he's a professional photographer and he um was part of the the team of scientists that went in 1978 to to study the shroud he wrote a paper on on this which you can find on on his website shroud.com uh, in which he looks at this hypothesis, could the shroud have been a, a photograph? Well, because people say, oh, well, there were the raw materials were, were there uh, even in medieval times to make a photograph. But he points out the raw materials were there to, to make microwave ovens and <laughs> nuclear bombs as well. It doesn't mean that they actually made them. And why is the first recorded photograph in the 19th century if there was some you know, amazing uh, person who was able to develop that technology and just did it once, just for the just for the shroud image, and and he, they, this this forger would have had to to crucify someone as well to to get the forensic evidence. But the the key thing, it seems to me, though is that as well as the photographic negative properties, it was discovered by Dr. Jan John Jackson, who uh, was the sort of founder of, of the STIRP team, the team of scientists who went there in, in 1978. He discovered using some uh, technology that uh, was available even in the 1970s called an image intensifier, which basically looks for uh, distance information from from uh, an image, and it had been used for studying x-rays and, and so on. Dr. Silverman, and, uh, I have to jump in because we're going to take a time out, but we'll come back okay. to this because I know where you're going with this distance coding that's contained in the image, and this is a real shocker. So not only is it a negative image on the shroud, we'll find out what else the information in that shroud reveals. Dr. Andrew Silverman, the author of A Burst of Conscious Light, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.
The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Have you subscribed to my free monthly newsletter, The Inner Sanctum? You can get yours delivered to your email inbox every month. All you need to do is go to my website, strangeplanet.com. And register your name and email address. Do it right now and you'll receive the next issue in March. Once you register, you'll also be automatically entered into the monthly draw for free Strange Planet merchandise like t-shirts, hoodies, sweatshirts, mugs, socks, phone cases, tote bags, and more. Again, to register, go to strangeplanet.ca. And we are back with Dr. Andrew Silverman, and his new book is called A Burst of Conscious Light, Near-Death Experiences, The Shroud of Turin, and the Limitless Potential of Humanity. So, we were talking about this uh, remarkable piece of linen cloth, the most studied artifact, perhaps, in history, and uh, this group called STIRP. Um, were examining it, and they were using some equipment developed by NASA, and they discovered, I think you described it as distance coding in there, which tells us what. Yes, I, actually, I, I understand that the, although there were some of the scientists there uh, were had worked with, with NASA and Jet Propulsion Laboratory and so on, the actual image intensifier, I don't think was actually um, developed by NASA. But, ah. but basically, um, what they discovered was that if you take an ordinary photograph and you put it through a, through a image intensifier, then what you see is a random set of peaks and troughs that don't correspond to the actual three-dimensional relief shape of, say, a, a human face or a human form. But when you do the same thing to the shroud image, then it comes out in relief at you and you see that the the basically the intensity of the image is dependent on how close the the shroud was to the body that was wrapped within it, which is not what you would expect to find if, for example, someone had been doing a camera obscura technique and it was which would be based on light reflected from the body. The amazing conclusion, which is very difficult to get away from, is that it appears that it, the image was formed by something that emanated from the body of the man itself. Now, the, the sepia discoloration of the surface fibrils is a very much a surface phenomenon. It's one five thousandth of a millimeter in thickness. Which, so very, which very rules thin. out paint because paint would yes. soak into the lower fibrils. Exactly right, yes. And um, so uh, the actual nature of it, when you study it chemically, it's not anything that's been added to the cloth, but it's actually an what's called oxidation and dehydration of these surface fibrils, very similar to how paper, you know, old books uh, turn yellowish, especially when they're exposed to sunlight. And I believe this might have been one of the, the things that got people thinking and, and led to a team of scientists at the Atomic Energy Institute in, in Italy, in Frascati, led by Dr. Paolo Di Lazzaro. They then said, okay, well, let's see, since the change in the surface fibrils of the cloth is similar to what happens uh, when paper is exposed to sunlight, uh, then they actually tried exposing linen to short, intense bursts of very high intensity, very short duration bursts of ultraviolet laser. 
and they found that that actually at a, a certain uh, level of the the laser for a certain very short duration, you could replicate similar at a microscopic level similar changes to the uh, to the surface fibrils of a linen cloth that made similar changes to what we see on the shroud now, now okay if i could just jump in if i could just sure. jump in uh, dr silverman just so for people uh to understand here this distance coding basically it means that the image on the shroud yes you will and we'll come back to the the light emanating from the body itself but basically what it, what you're telling us is that it's a three-dimensional image on the shroud now how do you how could a how could a forger do that yes and and why would they bother to to do it even if they knew how to do it if the technology to discover what they had done would only become available 600 years later for for us to realize that they that they had that they had achieved this right so we yes. have a negative image a three-dimensional image so this forger let's assume had to have you know that ability uh keep in mind if you look at medieval paintings they don't even understand perspective back then mm. so then we have someone with an incredible knowledge of physiology uh, who has an incredible knowledge of botany. You mentioned, uh, I believe, pollen samples that were a- around the head, which would correspond to uh, the crown of thorns. Uh, uh, so just an incredible, you know, uh, this person would have had to have, have been 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times smarter than Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, okay, yes. so let's get back to this. So in order to replicate this, they were able to use use a laser. And I think that the, the figure you quote in the book is 34,000 billion watts of energy. Is that correct? Of, uh, of power, actually. Ah. What's it, because So uh, watts are related to the rate of transfer of energy. Of course, if it had been a huge amount of energy that formed the image, then that would have vaporized the cloth and probably the tomb and, and everything that was around it. So, But it's, it's power relates to the rate of transfer of energy. And that's why with the uh, experiments with the ultraviolet laser, it's very, very short duration, tiny fractions of much less than one millionth of a second even um and and so within that short duration it's like a sudden burst of 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 ultraviolet light but but they're not suggesting that it could have been done technologically because we couldn't do it technologically now even with 21st century science we wouldn't be able to to produce a whole image of a of a human body they're just making can you can you put this in in perspective for us for like 34,000 billion watts um i mean how much does a nuclear plant produce or a bomb it's, a it's nuclear less bomb less than that yeah and, and well i'm not sure nuclear bomb that's that may be um probably uh up there with it but uh but of course in a nuclear power plant they're trying to avoid there being a a, a runaway chain reaction um and the actual power output of those is is less than that. So um, yes, it's less than the, the 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 power output of a nuclear plant is less than the power output that would have that would have formed the image on the shroud. If indeed it did form, as I believe the evidence shows, looking at the the peer reviewed work that has been done by these scientists in 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 Frascati at the Atomic Energy Institute, then. You know, there's no way that we'd be able to to do this 
technologically even today, let alone sort of in you know the 13th or 14th century. And is would there be any trace of that radiation still on the if we knew what to look for on the shroud or within the tomb, which is supposedly the the the, the church of the Holy Sepulchre, where the the tomb is believed to have been located? Would there be any radiation there still? Um, if it had been a burst of ultraviolet light, that wouldn't necessarily. In fact, it wouldn't really leave any radiation effect because it is once it's as soon as it's formed and it's uh, that ultraviolet light that changes the cloth is absorbed by the cloth and the energy from it is makes a chemical change happen then then it's no longer there if you like it so there wouldn't necessarily be a physical uh thing that you would be able to measure but the the shroud image itself may be the the only physical evidence that we definitely have of this event so a sudden burst of ultraviolet light, 34,000 billion watts of, uh, of energy from a dead body. Mm. That's what we're, we're left with, essentially. Yes. And the interesting thing is, again, uh, as I realized after attending the presentation, as I said, he, he presented, Dr. Gilbert Levoy presented at the same conference where I presented actually at the Atomic Energy Institute in, in 2010. And he pointed out something that I, I have to confess I'd never occurred to me before. But if you actually look at the, at the image on the shroud, then you see that the, the, the image of the back of the body there's no flattening of the of the buttocks or the calves and the hair is is not hanging down behind the body as you would expect if the man had been laying flat it looks as though it's actually hanging down on his on his shoulders now what this suggests is that at the moment that the shroud that when the blood stains formed the body was was wrapped in the in the shroud and was was laying flat on on its back but then somehow something happened that meant that the body became vertical and not vertical as in standing because if you look at the feet they're not in a standing position vertical and suspended in the air and at that moment there was this sudden burst of, of probable, uh, probably a burst of ultraviolet light. We think from looking at the evidence. Unbelievable. We've got to we've got to break we've got to break away again. But so again, mm-hmm. a negative image, a three dimensional image, and an and an image that indicates it was suspended uh, vertically in midair when this remarkable burst of energy took place. Back with more of my conversation with Dr. Andrew Silverman, the author of A Burst of Conscious Light. Right after this. You talk about you know the natural world and 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 um, how we have to understand where the mind fits into the natural world, uh, and and yet you, you point out this this fascinating paradox uh, when we're trying to understand the role of the mind or the observer in the natural world. Let's talk a little bit about you know the empirical view of the world, which doesn't allow for the mind. Yes, well. Basically, this is something that Erwin Schrödinger, one of the founders of quantum theory, pointed out, that the empirical model of a way of looking at, at the world, if you, if you do that, basically you're describing your experiences, the content of your experience, and you're re- removing from the discussion that which can 
that which can perceive it. And so because you've done that by definition, as it were, then in the empirical view of the world, there is no mind. And yet we we know through our constant experience all the time that that there is one. And so there is a sort of contradiction that Schrodinger pointed out in the empirical view of the world, which is the reason why some uh, people believe, some people who follow what I would call not science, but scientism, that would say that any notion of there being a mind that can influence matter is dualism. But they are the ones that have divided the mind away from the physical world by seeing the physical world as only consisting of the contents of our perception and forgetting that the perceiver exists. Right. They, they divide the natural world into two parts, the observed mm. and the observer. That's implicit to the empirical worldview. And yet at the same time, they deny the existence of the observer. We'll uh, take a yes. quick time out and uh, come back with our conversation on um, near-death experiences, the Shroud of Turn, and the limitless potential of humanity right here on The Conspiracy Show. Dr. Andrew Silverman is with us for the full two hours. I want to talk about mind and matter. And again, mm. the, the empiricist would say that since the mind is the product of the brain, and you describe it as, you know, this gelatin lump or gelatinous lump, that's what the brain is essentially. And, and the empiricist would believe that that is the sum total, you know, that's the mind. Mm. Uh, and since the brain is physical matter, the mind is influenced by matter and not the other way around. So yes. t talk to me about how the mind, in fact, does influence matter. Indeed. Well, this was something that as soon as quantum theory was developed, it became apparent that consciousness has to be fundamental to even to the existence of matter, that rather than mind being a product of matter, it's amazingly, the truth is, it's the reverse. Matter is the product of mind. And two leading quantum physicists and Nobel laureates, Erwin Schrodinger and Max Planck, were both interviewed by a reporter, I believe his name was, was Sullivan, in uh, the 1930s by a, a leading British newspaper called The Observer. And each of them went on the record to say when they were asked about consciousness that they believe consciousness is fundamental. It's not a product of matter and not a product of anything else. It is the basically part of the fundamental nature, the, the, the beginning and the nature of existence itself. Now, in fact, Eugene Wigner made the point that, in fact, there's nothing that we know of in science where an influence is only one way. If, if A influence, if A is able to influence B, then B must be able to influence A. And so he actually put in his, in his book, uh, about his reflections on, on philosophy and science and so on, that, that he believed that mind over matter is real. And also there's a professor of, at the University of Stanford, professor of physics called Andre Linder who wrote a leading textbook on something called inflationary cosmology. And he actually, in, in that book, he also says that, that he believes that consciousness may be something completely, completely fundamental and that we're, we're narrowing ourselves much too much as scientists by not considering that possibility that consciousness may be fundamental. And there's an interesting story that when he told his publish, when his publishers saw that he'd included that in his book, they said, you know, you might lose the respect of your, of your colleagues and readers if you leave that in the book. And he said, if I don't include it, I'll lose my self-respect because 
he could see that it's self-evident that consciousness is not just a, a string of ones and zeros. There's no way you can write it as a computer program and make something that will wake up and be aware and, and be someone rather than something. And that's the danger of, of people's, of the blindness that's leading us towards thinking about things like transhumanism, uploading and so on, is that if you, if you put a, a string of ones and zeros, which are derived from your brain or from your connectome or whatever it is that they're, they're taking from, it's always going to be just information. It's never going to be you. That's not how you continue. But there is a way to continue. In fact, you have it naturally as a human being. And perhaps what the, we see on the shroud and what the evidence that is garnered from all the near-death experiences that people have and their perception of the light that they see in the near-death experiences of being all compassion and, and all wisdom is showing us how we could, a way to, of living in which we could achieve a natural continuation without without technology i don't want to get too far too far i don't want to get too far ahead because we will come back to that in this in the second hour but um i just want to drill down a little bit further on uh how mind can control matter there's that classic example of the i believe it's called the is it the double slit experiment indeed can you tell us a little bit about that in in very sort of rudimentary terms Sure. Well, basically, the double slit experiment is a is an experiment that that gets to the heart of the issues, the the apparent paradox of of quantum mechanics. Because basically, until you actually observe the electron or the photon, then it doesn't have an actual location. It's not a thing. It's it's all as as Heisenberg said. The quantum realm of atoms and so on is a world of possibilities, of potentialities, rather than of of things or, or objects. And it's only when you actually observe it that you that you make it take on a, a fixed reality that's taken on as a result of that observation. And as as Eugene Wigner and several other people, including von Neumann, London, Bauer, the various other quantum physicists, and and more more latterly Andre Linder have, have pointed out, is that at the end of the at the end of the chain of observation, it's not good enough just to have a machine that watches it, because then the machine could both see it and not see it at the same time. You need to have a conscious observer because it's only in consciousness that we are never both things at once. We never, we never see that the electron is here, but or at there at the same time. It always, whenever we see it somewhere, it's always in in one place or or the other. So, in other words, the the simple act of observing these subatomic particles changes their behavior. Well, in, indeed. In fact, it can actually work through. The, it was something called the delayed choice experiment. You can set up a, a scenario whereby how you observe something now can change the past of the thing that, you're, that you've observed, or at least give it a past. It's not only making the present real, it's making the past real, because until you uh, actually observe it, then the history of where it was before you observed it is, has not happened yet. Oh my! It's, it's amazing. <laughs> that mm. is well. Then that brings us around to the subject of time being the, being the product of the mind, and therefore the mind 
uh, well, I'll get you to explain it because you're the expert here, but the, the, the concept of, uh, the notion of the present, the now, and how mm. that is a creation of the mind. Talk to me about yes. that. Again, I mean, I've, I've mentioned Schrodinger already, but this was a point that he made in his seminal work called uh, What is Life and Mind and Matter was the addendum to that. That um, basically, con- mind, consciousness, is always now. That whenever we are, we're always now. And people think, oh, but I have memories of the past and plans for the future. Yes, you do. And that where are those memories and plans? Well, they're now. You're experiencing them now, and we're always now. It says that the present is the only thing that has no end. That that mind is always now, and therefore, um, without the mind, there is no need for there to be a now. That the equations of of, of physics that relate to uh, the material world, they describe it as though all of history and future are all there together, but it's only in consciousness, as as, uh, Professor Roger Penrose pointed out, it's only for for mind, for consciousness, that time needs to flow at all. There's no flow of time in a material system unless uh, the, the appearance of the flow of time is something that happens, that happens within consciousness. So Schrodinger pointed out that time is a result of consciousness, and therefore that if that which consciousness has made cannot make consciousness. If we've made time, then time can't make us and time can't, time can't end us. So therefore, he, he said, I, I propose the indestructibility of mind by time. Fantastic. And this is the point I make in the book that, that we act, that's the amazing thing as sentient beings is we have no beginning. So I don't, I don't suggest that we were created, and I don't suggest in any way that that we as sentient beings could ever be manufactured. I believe we are that the universe has a beginning, but we don't. That even without physical universes, sentient being is there, and that physical universes are what happens when sentient being becomes limited and therefore separate so that we take on individuality space and time are just in other words for the for the separation of points and this is why i believe people like jesus and the buddha and muhammad and all the other great teachers said that we should all love our neighbor as ourselves that we should that there that we should recognize that fundamentally there is no there is no separation except the separation that we have made. And that's what, by empathy, compassion, and so on, the, the way of living that, that Jesus, for example, demonstrated, that might be the way that we might be able to return to be that light that people see in their death experiences, which may be the same light that formed the image on the shroud. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. And uh, Dr. Andrew Silverman stays with us in the next hour. A burst of conscious light, near-death experiences, the Shroud of Turin, and the limitless potential of humanity. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. 
Dr. Andrew Silverman stays with us this hour discussing the Shroud of Turin and its connection to near-death experiences and quantum theory. His new book is A Burst of Conscious Light. Dr. Silverman, before the, uh, the break at the top of the hour, we were talking about time being the product of the mind, therefore the mind must exist outside time, and therefore the mind is eternal. So, uh, what does this all have to do with the image on the Shroud of Turin? Well, that's a, again another very good question. The, uh, there's a, a professor of physics that some of your listeners may be familiar with called Professor David Bohm, uh, who lived in the in the well, he originally in the U.S. and then he he resided in the U.K. for a while. Now, he was once asked, why do you think it is that the, that the idea of light is figures so strongly in the notions of spirituality or, or mysticism? And he made the point that for light or anything that is at the speed of light and therefore uh, to, uh, to be at the speed of light means you have no mass, no, no rest mass, as, as it said, then the start and finish of a journey if you like are the same point to a to a, a beam of light that the einstein's relativity shows that at the speed of light there is no if you're traveling at the speed of light there's no distance and there's no duration so the if you like it the the clocks don't tick if they if they were, could move at the speed of light a physical clock of course can't move at the speed of light because nothing with mass can can do so so light basically is if you like the interface between the state beyond or if you want to use the word before before is not a perfect word but but beyond space and time beyond the physical universe where there's no space or time then light could be seen as the interface between the two states of being because it does join up all the points together just as it so it joins up all the points of space and time and also it could be seen to represent what joins us all as individual sentient beings which would fit with the near-death experience experiences saying that that they see this this light and in that light is is perfect knowledge perfect wisdom and complete love they feel cared for by that light and as though all being is is within that light now basically what that reflects is how one can achieve a state that's beyond time so they see the light but they don't become the light that's that's why they come back and so um perhaps through what he taught and through living according to what he taught the the man of the shroud was actually able to to do something very interesting, which basically David Bohm in that uh, that talk I was mentioning, where he spoke about about light, he said that matter is frozen light. That basically that when light is is made to to take on a, a, a location, then it becomes it becomes matter. So perhaps what happens is that light becomes frozen as a result of us taking on separate existences as individuals and we're separated by our restrictions by selfishness by prejudice by racism nationalism materialism ah, anything that's interesting. that the, the, anything that sounds that, like the, the christian notion of sin because when you when you sin uh you can look at that as 
Christians would look at that as being separated from the Godhead. Well, I mean, basically, I I think that the man of the shroud, Jesus of Nazareth, wasn't actually isn't doesn't belong to any of the. He's not owned, if you like, by any any of the traditions, any of the religious traditions. But in fact, when he was asked what what his purpose was, he said, "I'm here to." bear witness to the truth. So I think, yes, in, in all of the religions, not just in, 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 in Christianity, um, but in, in all of the religions, and many of them actually do, um, you know, recognize his his wisdom, that, that there is this notion that, that by by becoming limited and restricted, we're we're dividing ourselves away from from the Godhead, or or the Buddhists would say, from our, for example, uh, we're we're separating ourselves from our true Buddha nature. Now, Jesus is reported to have said, "Is it not written in the law that you are gods?" So he's saying that to to, to humanity, and uh, and he referred to himself as the as the Son of Man, and. But he, what he was referring to as as the Father, as uh, for want of a better word, some people may call this phenomenon phenomenon God. Well, he said that that was all. He referred to this state of being as our Father also. So he was always saying what that, and he said anything that you see me do, you can also do. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could make that mountain move. He was always demonstrating the power of all humanity. He wasn't, I believe, trying to set himself up as being something unattainable that was just showing us how something that we could never achieve. Yes, he was showing that we have taken on restriction. And a fascinating example is that... I, I suggest in the book that the undoing of the restriction that that he did maybe what made his actual as as the atoms in their tension become undone the twistiness is reduced if you like then they become lighter that's how he was able to walk on the water but peter also is said to have walked on the water and then in a moment of doubt he started to sink now that is giving us a clue i believe that it's actually that we are like uh, a lens or a, a faucet, if you like, like or in, in the UK we call it a tap, that um, allows or disallows that this this light or this this freedom, this lack of enforcement, or what Jesus referred to as his peace, that we allow or disallow that into us as a result of how our mind is is directed, whether it's to separate through selfishness or to be completely empathic and loving to to unite and in such a way to be able to undo the force that limits us restricts us divides us and makes this physical universe that that rots away do you have a an idea though the actual process that that led to the the, the light emanating from his dead body well again the a very good question i believe of course this is going to be this is going to be speculation i'm making a, a suggestion for people to to consider that i believe makes sense to me but i'm always you know waiting to hear what what other people say once they once they've read it but basically i make the point that there's a continuum if you like in in terms of causation that that free will 
is what I call primary causation. Because if you make this, you make a decision, nothing makes you make the decision that you you didn't have to make it. There are influences that make you more likely to make it. But if it's free, if you could have chosen something different, then ultimately your choice is a, what I call a primary cause. Whereas enforcement, force, like you, you kick the ball and the ball moves, that's secondary cause. So that's because of force. So, and will exists where where nothing forces it to happen. So what I suggest is that there is, uh, on one end of the spectrum, there is complete peace and freedom, and on the other end, there is complete enforcement. And basically, force is, is limit, it's, it's restriction, and what he did is he undid that force by becoming freer by not limiting his himself to that point of individuality his unique individuality he was always looking out altruistic empathetic towards all of his fellow man and living according to that outlook on life which meant that he in not being restricted and not being limited he was taking on a much broader scope which was less enforced bearing in mind that the, the force is a result of our, our choice to separate. You can imagine it like a like a spring, that, that you move the two ends of the spring further apart and you get more tension. But af- as you let them come closer together, there's less tension, less, less enforcement. And it was through that unenforcing process that the peace, if you like, that the atoms began, began to unwind. And I mean, I go into it in more detail in the book, but the, there's a fascinating thing that um, is that he that he said, which I believe may relate to the moment that the shroud image formed regarding the the burst of lightning going from the east to the west, because that appears to to me to be how his his body would have been oriented. You see, the the light didn't go in in all directions; it went projected in the straight line forwards and and backwards from what we anatomically would call the coronal plane of the body that goes goes straight through the body so if he was upright uh, the body was upright at the moment the image formed then there was a burst of light that went forwards and backwards but the it appears that the 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 shroud was suspended over the top of his head but there's no image of the top of his head and there's no image of the of the side parts of the body. Interestingly, and I, I, I mentioned earlier that I was going to talk about how the, the blood stains and the image don't completely tie up. And for example, the blood stains around the from the face, some of those are, are projected over the image of the of the hair, which implies that at the moment that the blood stains formed, the shroud was draped over the body, but it's as though the shroud was flattened at the moment that the the image formed when the 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 body was upright and you can see uh, what's known as the off elbow blood stain that there's a stain sort of away, a little bit away from his elbow but which would have corresponded with how the cloth would have been folded over his elbow when the the dead body had been had been laid out flat but then it's it straightened out when the when the image formed and the body was vertical right um, why ultraviolet light? Why not gamma rays? Why not some other form of radiation? 
Well, again, that's a, a very good question, uh, and um, I, I don't actually don't actually know the the reason why it would have been uh, that particular light. But it just seems again now we are I am going to the empirical um, evidence because that's what that suggests that that it was ultraviolet light that that formed the image. Um, and in fact, it's it's fortunate for us that it was because had it been anything else, then the the image wouldn't have been there in all its detail that tells us so much about the about the man because X-rays would have probably just gone straight through the the cloth. Now, staying with the theme of light, uh, every uh, Easter, uh, I'm I'm an Orthodox uh, Christian, Greek Orthodox Christian, mm-hmm. and um, the. Uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it is said that uh, on uh, the morning of the, what would have been the resurrection, uh, there is a, uh, a candle that lights spontaneously inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, in Jerusalem. And then this, this light uh, is taken by, I guess it would be the, uh, the, uh, the Archbishop there, and it is passed around and, and one candle lights another, and then those candles eventually, they make their way across to, well, all the corners of the earth, and then in, when I go to, um, the, uh, the resurrection service, uh-huh. uh, they, they pass around that light, and we all light our candles, and it all emanates from that spontaneous light that is said not to burn. Uh, you know, the bishop will put his, put his hand through the flame. It will not burn, but it lights spontaneously. Do you think that's coming from the same place or could it be, could it be related to this, um, event, resurrection event? Uh, unfortunately, I'm not really able to, to, to comment about that particular event, not having, uh, studied the, any, any scientific research, um, upon it. So I, I can't really, uh, not really in a position to, to speculate uh, what what causes it, whereas the, the the shroud image, as you mentioned earlier, is probably of all historical artifacts has been one of the most studied of all, and so it's based on that. When I when I talk about things and objects, then uh, and and physical uh, phenomena, then I like to 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 base that on on empirical research that has been done on them. So I, you know, I'd be interested to know about empirical research that's done on this, um, on, on, on this light. But I suppose what, what probably matters is, is what it, what it means to those people who, who, uh, who experience it. Right. Right. Uh, so you, you talk about light. Uh, someone had a theory that light was, um, frozen matter. Matter is frozen light. Matter yeah. is frozen. Yes. Matter is frozen light. Uh, so is that what we are? We're, we're, our, I mean, our physical bodies. We are the sort of the interruption of this, this transmission of light. Our, I would say yes. That the the matter of our bodies is is frozen light, but we are of as as sentient beings with with awareness and with with free will. We are of the light itself. Our our nature is of the light because the 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 body is is frozen light but that body dies and we have evidence from the death experiences that the consciousness continues beyond that so so that's not us that's just the the shell that we're that we're in and that we leave behind right so that leads us into a discussion of the near-death experience uh but when before we get to the near-death experience the actual process of physical death uh it's been suggested that the you know the body weighs 
a little bit less, a few ounces or something at the moment of death. Uh, is this, do you think, evidence that, that consciousness is leaving the body or, or you know, in the religious uh, context, we would call it the soul or the spirit leaving the body? Well, you know, I don't believe that that uh, consciousness has a weight. And, and in fact, I, um, I uh, made this point to a very eminent physicist, uh, Professor Sir Herman Bondi, when he, he came to do it. I mentioned this in, in the book. He came to do a, a, a public lecture at the university where I was studying medicine. Uh, and that because I was asking about whether light can be everywhere instantly all at once, if you like, all along its path because time isn't relevant for light. So I asked whether that would then mean if we could be like that as sentient beings, then could we be like light and beyond time and so on? And and he said that, uh, well, yes, the equations do say that, but you have to bear in mind that we have mass and nothing with mass can, can Einstein's equation e equals mc squared, in fact, shows us that, that you can never actually get a material object up to the speed of light because its mass will approach infinity as, as you get closer to the, the speed of light. So it's taken an infinite amount of energy to get it there. Um, but then I said to him, but how do we know that for sure? Why do we assume that that mind or thought has to be associated with a with a physical body, or that it has to have? How much does does consciousness weigh? I asked him. And if if that there is such a thing as sentience without matter, as in fact, of course, subsequently to that, um, uh, and totally unconnected from it, um, Andre Linde has made the point that consciousness is fundamental and is not a product of matter. Um, so if if uh, he was, was right, and if the earlier scientists like uh, Eugene Wigner made the point that consciousness is fundamental, not from, from matter, then could it be that that we could also be like that and be be beyond time. And he said that his reply was that, yes, that would fit with the equations, but he didn't feel that this was a was a sort of path that was was interesting to 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 go down to 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 analyze he didn't consider it relevant because presumably of course i'm guessing what he was thinking but he 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 may have subscribed to the sort of materialist notion that that our minds are just a product of our brains but of course there's so much evidence that they're not in near-death experiences for example the brain waves can be completely flat while people are having their experience. And the experience can involve what's known as a veridical experience, where they can actually accurately describe things that they couldn't have known about. Even blind people who have had near-death experiences have seen things during their experience that they couldn't possibly have known about and then related it to to their doctors or, or other people afterwards. When uh, we're coming up on a break here, but uh, when the moment of physical death occurs, do you think that that consciousness part of it is within the body and and comes out of the body, or is it the other way around? Is the body inside the consciousness? Well, you see, my point is that location is is less relevant for for consciousness 
than it is for for material objects. It doesn't have to be to be fixed to a, a defined defined point in in space. And uh, take take an example. I often say to people as an as an illustration of how um, the the fact that uh, that they they associate the consciousness with the brain because the brain is there when when you are conscious as a, a sentient as a, an awake. Uh, physical living human being. Now, I make the point that if you take a radio and and you switch it on and you hear hear your favorite song, do you really do people really believe that the the radio wrote the song or the radio is singing the song to them? The, of course they don't. Now, if you if you damage or detune the radio, it won't play the song so clearly. You might just hear some noise, just like if you injure the brain, you don't hear the noise, but the song isn't isn't in the radio just like when we turn on the tv and we see people on the screen they're not in the they're not they're not in that screen in the right. same sense the body is if you like uh, is a receiver for consciousness it doesn't it doesn't make it it doesn't strictly speaking it doesn't even contain it it's just we have this notion that our consciousness is somewhere in our heads which i think is partly because our our sense organs like the eyes and the ears are are on the the, the the circumference of our of our head, so it feels like the experience is somehow happening, you know, behind our eyes and um, and between our ears. But it's actually far more than that. I gotta go. Uh, I've gotta gotta run. We'll uh, take another time out. Come back and uh, continue this uh, fascinating conversation, Doctor Andrew Silverman, my guest, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Hey, if you enjoy The Conspiracy Show, you're going to love my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can listen and subscribe at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. And it's now available on Spotify. Stephen Hawking once said that the unanticipated consequences of artificial intelligence will be the greatest threat to humanity's survival. In his book, A Burst of Conscious Light, Dr. Andrew Silverman reveals why the powerful consciousness of the human mind could never be manufactured and so cannot be reproduced with technology. Uh, Dr. Silverman, how do we get a copy of A Burst of Conscious Light? Well, it should be available in all in all major booksellers. You can uh, also you can order it um, from the, the the publishers in the traditions, or uh, from uh, Simon and Schuster, who are also distributing it. Uh, or you people can get it from from Amazon as well. So it's it's broadly available pretty much across the world, actually. And go- it's actually oh. today. Uh, well, I, the it's it's available from the eleventh of February. Excellent. Uh, I want to talk about near-death experiences again, uh, or in some more in-depth. And uh, there are a certain number of characteristics that seem to be universal with the near-death experience. And one of them, of course, as you mentioned earlier, is people feeling uh, enveloped by this this warm, uh, unconditionally loving light. Mm. So, that's is that the same light that that uh, you believe emanated from the, the body of, of Christ? Uh, I, I believe that, the, that when the, the body of, of Jesus of Nazareth was, was, was in the tomb, 
that there was that yes there was a burst of light that came from it i believe that the scientific evidence demonstrates this and from sort of uh, an deduction and from induction bringing it all together uh, adduction as it were um of all the of all the evidence that i believe that that yes that and i i give the reasons why i think this is the case in in the book that that light is the is the same light that that people see in their in their near death experiences. That's why when people have a near death experience, when they have their life review, which is instantly probably where the term "seeing one's whole life flash before you" comes from, because that's been there, you know, for for, for a long time. And people who have near death experiences actually experience that. But the interesting thing is that they experience it from the point of view of the other the other person so anything that they did that hurt someone else they feel it as though that hurt is within them anything when they were kind to someone else they feel as though that kindness is being done to themselves so what we see in the near-death experience is an unraveling of this apparent separation between between individual identity and we're seeing evidence that that fundamentally and, the, and to our root nature that that we're all one but yet we're divided by the things that we do that separate through selfishness and all the other things that i was mentioning earlier that 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 restrict us so it's i don't think it's coincidence that the that the man whose image it appears was the, is on the shroud the the one who was the, the the source of the light that made that that image that he spoke about so so much about you know loving your enemy about forgiveness loving your neighbor as yourself because within that light your neighbor is yourself if if we're all one there so all the evidence points to me to makes me consider very strongly that the the light in the nde and the light that that formed the image are the same and so who is the source of the light when when an individual is having an NDE and they see that light? Who is the source of that light? Right. Good question. Well, there there is no no in a sense no who to it because the who that that we that we see in terms of individuals of names or identities is a uh, a, a result, a consequence of the fragmentation into into separate identities. But the state that that we came from, if we had no uh, no beginning, it, uh, that we have uh, our separation has a beginning. But if we are beyond time, and yet the universe began in time then that light in which we are all one must be eternal. So it's still there now. And so in a sense, we are all the source of that light, but we're the source of that light in our, in our perfected state or our unimperfected state, if you like, in, where, in the state where we, we hadn't yet, in quotes, yet, made separation become separate if you like so in it, what i'm suggesting is that we are of that light but in making ourselves separate we don't diminish that light because by its very nature it's beyond time and it can't become less it, can't, it doesn't doesn't need to change but it, this is quite difficult to put this in a in a soundbite but but it is all sort of explained in far more detail in the book right and and why do some people see a light and uh, and have an nde and others do not well of course 
the, we know that some people remember having an NDE or report having an NDE. In fact, uh, eminent, an eminent uh, cardiologist by the name of Pim Van Lommel, who incidentally was kind enough to write a very nice uh, comment about my book, which is on the, the sleeve, he did a uh, study of, uh, and it was published in a, a prestigious uh, British medical journal called The Lancet about uh, near-death experiences, and he found that that around 10% of people uh, who are resuscitated report having had an NDE. Now, the interesting thing, if you look at, for example, at, um, at, at and I'm not comparing in any way an NDE to a dream, but I'm just defining something about memory here. If you, in sleep labs, you find that, that people actually have many, many dreams during a night's sleep, uh, but most of them you don't remember. Now, I use this as part of the my um, argument for if there is such a thing as reincarnation, uh, I mentioned in the book, if there is such a thing as reincarnation, that one of the potential reasons why we don't remember our past lives, that you remember a dream if you're woken during it, um, and you don't remember the other dreams. And the, the past lives that people remember clearly are usually ones where they had a sudden, unexpected or violent death. And then they remember it, just like we remember a dream when we're woken from it. And I think perhaps maybe maybe we all have NDEs when, when we die, or DEs, if you like, death experiences, but that the only 10% of people, that's the proportion who have both, who have remembered it and then reported it. Right. I mean, in, in many cases, we're only now learning about NDEs because of uh, resuscitation techniques. Absolutely right. Yeah, and and uh, and people that that may have an NDE on the the operating table, for example, they're they're under the influence of anesthesia, and that impairs the memory certainly. Well, um, as I say, often the NDEs happen during during cardiac arrest, where the brain waves have been completely flat, and where people don't have any chemicals in their system that would make them uh, hallucinate and so on, and and uh, the. The, that's how it differs from a sort of delirium or, or hallucination. And in fact, as I say, many of them are veridical experiences. So they see things that they couldn't physically have, have known about through their senses during the NDE, including blind people seeing things. Right. And then, of course, people that come back often report hearing a voice or just knowing that they're being sent back because it wasn't their time. What's happening there, do you think? Well, I, I suspect that you know they. If the the, the it's interesting that the um, the Hindus and Buddhists have the notion of karma, and in fact, I think that Jesus may have been referring to this notion as well. If if, if you like cause and effect, that with the parable of the the man who refused to forgive his servant, that he ended up having to go to to prison. Uh, himself, that that's a, an analogy that if you don't forgive, that if you allow harm to stay in you, to distort you, then you may need to uh, to put that right with the person. Uh, and and so it, it may be that that people have have more to do in their lives. Maybe that that through what we do to each other, if it's negative, that if we're to be able to be to unite to become free and undo our restriction maybe our restrictions have are in that sense connected to the harm we've done to others and that we then have a chance to put right if we if we come back and meet that person again 
All right, uh, time to take uh, another time out, and we'll come back. A few segments remain with Dr. Andrew Silverman, the author of A Burst of Conscious Light, Near-Death Experiences, The Shroud of Turin, and the Limitless Potential of Humanity. Keep it right where you have it on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stand by for more. I want to continue to talk about the near-death experience for a few moments yet. What happens to, I mean, some people don't see the light. There have been reports uh, from some people. They, they, they get a glimpse of what they might describe as hell. What's, mm. what, what, how does that relate, do you think, to the light? Well, I mean, I suppose, again, of course, I'm speculating here, but it may be that their psychology is not looking at that light. It's looking away from it through how they're living their lives. And many of the people who who describe seeing darkness instead, uh, that when they, they are resuscitated, they totally change their, their outlook afterwards because then they, they, they realize that, that there is consequence and they realize that, that, that although they glimpse a, a darkness, it sort of implies to them that there must be an opposite to it and, and they become much more empathetic, compassionate, caring people and just completely, a lot of people's lives completely change after that from, from both experiences, from the, the light or the dark. When, when we go into the light, when we die, mm. uh, do we retain our, our individual uh, consciousness, or do we just become part of one? Are we? Are we? Do we still have a sense of me, I? Mm. I believe that our our identity, our our consciousness. It's an excellent question. Again, I believe that that is is eternal. Now, it can be eternal in separation, which is means that we have a, a fingerprint, if you like, a pattern of shadow in that light that demarcates us as us. But if you take away that shadow, then you don't lose your identity, you're actually regaining it. Just as you know, um, when you, you love and care for, for other human beings, that they it's, it's as though they're, they're part of you, then in that sense that you would still be you would still be you but you would become the all so you wouldn't be extinguishing yourself by becoming free of shadow and becoming purely the light you would just be immensely and infinitely enhancing your your wisdom your experience and your the joy of of being being the all and and, and that sense that people have of of that they're happy because they are they are loved well in that sense you you actually become love if you become the light and and what do we what do we then do what is our i mean how for example does reincarnation fit into this into this model if well, at all? i believe yes i i believe that reincarnation which incidentally there's evidence for it having been uh, alluded to in all the world's major religions and for example um although uh, i mean in, or just take uh, in jesus's time before before his 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 words were were sort of um, before before religions were formed based on his words, if you like, that um, that he was when he was asking his apostles, who do people say that I am, and um, they said, well, some say that you're that maybe the Messiah, others say that that you can't be because before the Messiah comes, Elias or Elijah um, must return. 
and and he said uh, he's quoted to have said i tell you he has already returned and you didn't recognize him and and then the text says that they understood that he was talking about john the baptist now how could if there's no such thing as reincarnation how did elias return as john the baptist Surely he's actually <laughs> stating there now in, in, in black and white, if we're to, to think that maybe that those were his actual words or, and were what they said, that, that, they're, that his apostles whom he had taught were considering that as a, as a possible option for how Elias might have returned as another person. In other words, reincarnation had, had happened. So I think reincarnation is, is there if... If we still have restrictions and limitations, then it's our chance to be able to to put it right, not through being judged or or told off or or punished, but in a sense, the experience that people have in near death experiences is that they are their own judge, that they're the ones who feel that what they did was wrong, and now they want to try to to try to put it right. Um, and then once we go into the light uh, for eternity. What is our purpose then? Yes, I think the the um, the the we're, when we think of of eternity, we're, we're thinking of a very very long time, like as if um, you know uh, I'm s- sitting looking at a wall and I'm going to be looking at that wall for a year, a thousand, a million, a billion. But it, that's that's in in temporal terms. That that this is this is beyond time. So then. It's actually uh, total bliss, total wisdom, if you like, and it, it, its its purpose is, of course, we we make value judgments for for purpose. So um, so people may um, may choose to that they're, they're not interested in 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 eternal existence. They just like. Um, physical things and so that's the purpose for them it's just uh really it's it's that's the thing about about free will is that ultimately we decide what we consider our our purpose to to be but if our purpose is something that that limits us then then we're going to we're going to stay limited but if we were to undo that limit then our, all of our experience would be would be enhanced. As I say, we wouldn't be extinguished in becoming the light. We would actually be fulfilling our identity rather than rather than sort of dis- dissolving it into a into a into a you know meaningless meaningless sea. We would still be you would still be conscious and experiencing that. All right, we'll take one final time out, come back and finish up with Dr. Andrew Silverman, a burst of conscious light right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. In terms of our limitless potential as humans, does that mean that once someone becomes, I guess the term is self-actualized or someone like, say, for example, a Mother Teresa or, I don't know, Mahatma Gandhi or, you know, people that live out very saintly lives and so forth, why wouldn't they also demonstrate the same sort of traits as Jesus at his physical death. In other words, uh, this burst of radiant energy. Yeah, you see, the interesting thing is that the burst of radiant energy uh, didn't happen at his death. It happened at some time after it. Ah, right. And 
yeah, but he, the the fascinating thing is that that there was also reported to have been uh, a, a burst of burst of light from him while he was alive, and of course, uh, many other people throughout history have been described as as being as though they were radiant, that people had a could see could see light around them, like people like the Buddha and so on. So he may not have been the the only one, and it may just be be uh, to do with extent that he that he did that he achieved that completely and showed that it was possible the full extent of of uh, the of human achievement that we could that we could uh, achieve that completely of course i'm not in a position to to um to to judge any of those those wonderful people that you've you've mentioned and know to what extent they did or didn't achieve that and maybe maybe there are other people who have who have you know there has been a, a, a this burst of light phenomenon, but we, it's, it is something that that it seems that that we all experience at least at the at the point of death in the in the near death experiences. So to me, the point isn't so much about whether our body physically shines. The point is whether we can undo the restriction in the in the mind that 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 has the shadow that. That divides us through selfishness, materialism, racism—all the things that, that that divide our man from his fellow man and woman, of course. Right, right, and of course, after his uh, resurrection, according to the gospel account, I mean, he was physically resurrected. He 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 continued to walk the earth, and he continued to meet with his disciples. Uh, yeah, is that also within human potential? I, I I believe it is, but it, I don't. I think that that his particular um, sort of lifetime and and what and that happening. I don't think that that means that that anyone who who achieves what he achieves would necessarily need to to resurrect a body. But perhaps he still had, uh, you know, was able to to wanted to come back and and help the the people around him and had the had the potential to do that. I don't think that, that there's there's one fixed path that, that 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 everyone has to has to follow. Except the the key point to me in terms of what he said, what he taught, and and how he lived was, as I say, that if you you see everything in terms of two simple directives. Either you separate and divide, in which case in everything breaks down in this physical universe. Everything rots, as like he said, moths and rust and thieves and so on. But there's another world where there is no breaking down, no, what we call no in physics is the second law of thermodynamics, which is what makes everything everything break down. That through, through uniting, through caring, that we can undo that and, and achieve eternity. And that's something that we can't do technologically. So that's why we could never upload ourselves into into machines. Uh, Jesus, of course, was reported to have performed miracles or what now appear to us as, as miracles. Um, do you think, for example, that we have the potential, uh, limitless potential of humanity? Would that include resurrecting or raising the dead or walking on water or you know well peter walked on the water the apostles um sort of did did many acts themselves and and he actually he himself uh is reported to have gone on the record to say everything that he did we would also be able to do 
said I, everything you see me do you can do also and greater than these things can can you do i think it's uh, somewhere in in the, the gospel of of, of john um so, but I don't think that's the point. I don't think it's about spectacle or being able to, as I say, every time we use our free will, that is mind over matter. You don't have to be turning water into wine for it to be mind over matter. So it's just rather than uh, sort of uh, 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 sort of trying to find, uh, I don't think he was about sort of uh, giving us a, 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 a book of magic spells to make, to make spectacular things happen, but they were an incidental product and, and only incidental and weren't what he was about but they happened simply uh, because of how much how much he cared so i think that you know the fact that that the, the if the loaves and the fishes multiplied that's because he cared so much about the 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 people being being hungry and 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 that that, that was powerful enough to to make that happen but that caring is you know someone who um who who um, gives food to someone who's hungry is doing the same thing, even if they haven't may they may be doing the same thing without actually having physically you know manifested out of the air that a loaf appears. You could go into a shop and buy it, and it's it's about the the compassion and kindness with which you do that, rather than 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 whether it um, whether you're you're you know making uh, things that people can call miracles, which to me. It, it's sort of it's sort of missing the point, really. Of, I think of, of 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 what he was about. That he he wasn't trying to to do spectacular things. He was just. If you look at every single one of these acts that he did, they were all out of compassion because he cared about someone. That someone had a leprosy or something, and so he helped them not be suffering from that condition because he cared. And that's that's to me is is the important take home message from from what what from his message that as far as obviously i i can i uh, have no uh, better position to to say what his message was than any other human being but but this is my personal interpretation of what he was saying what do you think it will take for humanity to reach this limitless potential i mean is it up to each individual separately or could there be some you know some people talk about some cosmic event that's going to elevate human consciousness and so forth. What do you think? I um, I think Mahatma Gandhi put it very well when he said, be the change that you want to see in the world. I think each of us are the authors of our own destiny and, and we are the ones who who can decide what we will do. We can't control what, what anyone else does and no one can control how we feel and what decisions we make. So um, I, I don't think there's an automatic process that will enhance our, our, our spirituality or our, our depth. In fact, the, the, the automatic, if you like, process, the natural way in a physical universe is that things go the other way, is that they get worse, not better. And, and but, but through recognizing why it might be uh, reasonable to go the opposite way to the physical universe to care rather than to to divide then each of us can make that happen and and then maybe just as people were inspired by seeing what he did um then people will people are inspired by 
you know, other people like Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi, and uh, you mentioned Mother Teresa, and and you know, people are inspired by how those people lived, and then maybe it leads them to 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 live in a slightly different way. But they're not actually getting inside other people's minds and making them better people, if you like, if there is such a thing. Uh, Dr. Silverman, once again, how do people get a copy of A Burst of Conscious Light? It should be available in all major bookstores. It's also available from the publishers in traditions or the distributors, Simon & Schuster, or from Amazon. A delight uh, speaking with you again, Dr. Silverman. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. My thanks to Owen and Carlos and Ryan. And back with a brand new program next week. Hope you can tag along. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the rooftops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.